0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on nine
1: hundred CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Uh, Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests in the newsroom. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Lots of talk lately about abuse and lack of respect in politics. Time to look in the mirror. Here's Scott
2: Thompson! Another jam-packed show, another chance for you to win your way to the CNE uh, on Toronto's waterfront. uh, Coming up in Hammerhead Trivia after the 5 o'clock news. How well do you know the city of Hamilton... Uh if you do, uh you'll know, win your CNE tickets. Feel free, love to hear from you. Uh that's coming up after the five o'clock news. All right, lots going on today. Um, you know, it's um and, and I guess the big international news, Princess Dies death. Uh 25 years ago today. Do you remember where you were? Uh that's one of those situations where uh you know a world event and many do, uh especially with this happening. I believe it was on the Saturday of the Labor Day long weekend that year. Uh, we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, gas prices are going to be down at midnight uh, by about seven cents a liter, which is very unusual heading into a long weekend, although they say by the time it's over, uh, hang on for fall, they're going to head back up again. Uh, minor cabinet shuffle for the Prime Minister today. You've heard about that in the news uh what else we got oh uh the gdp uh growth is up uh, the gross domestic product is up 3.3% so that is good news also we're going to hear a little later on from uh Dr. Moore uh the Ontario top doc 5 to 11 year olds boosters as of Thursday and everything set for the schools and the opening uh after labor day also Elizabeth May uh, remember her former leader of the uh federal green party Uh, is now entering the race to run the party again, but wants to do it with a co-leader. I'm not sure how that's going to work. Or uh, if it's uh, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back for the Green Party. Uh, We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, more chatter about uh, the Discord in Canadian politics, the polarization. Uh, Remember, Polite Canada. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Uh, and instead, we have uh, angry Canadians yelling at politicians, politicians, of course, uh, and rightly so, calling out the perpetrator, this bad person who said and yelled, and th- you know, things that he shouldn't have. And I think it's pretty obvious that, that that's not acceptable behavior. Now that we've decided on that, can we ask why? Some people think it is acceptable behavior and why people are so angry. Can we perhaps take a look at that Uh, instead of pointing at the bad people who snap and start doing things uh, as we saw in the case of Chrystia Freeland? Can we talk about the very politely arrogant politicians who aren't listening to what people have to say? Maybe that is where all this discussion should start. All right, uh, let's bring in, uh, yesterday we were talking about healthcare and the meeting between the Prime Minister and and the Premier, which, you know, let's be honest, in today's world, this is amazing that these guys work together so well. And, and I got to credit both of them uh, for doing that, whether it's EB stuff, whether it's healthcare, and not a lot of crap in the media because they're keeping it quiet. Uh, Colin DeMello filed this report yesterday. I want to play it again, but sort of talking about the relationship between these two. There's a lot that's changed since the Prime Minister first dropped into Queen's Park four years ago. A newfound relationship with a Premier who was once a protagonist.
3: Uh, I know we've had a great relationship with uh, many other ventures that we've we've worked on and we're going to continue to have a mutually rewarding uh, relationship for the people of Canada and the people of Ontario.
2: But the two leaders have found common ground, specifically on building affordable housing. Today, Trudeau was in Kitchener, pledging $2 billion to build 17,000 homes across the country. We need to make sure that we are rapidly creating more spaces for people to actually get that stability uh, and uh, that security that's going to allow them to uh, move forward and find their paths. Which is hilarious because it's usually governments have gotten in the way and provided the shortage of housing that we now have now. Uh, high demand, low supply. We haven't been building anything for years. Now we're experiencing the results. Healthcare, uh, the premier stressing, same thing, ain't going to work here. It's broken and we need a new system. We need some adjustments.
3: We agree that the status quo is not working. Uh, we, we keep... Pouring billions and billions of dollars into healthcare. We've increased healthcare spending since I've been in the office by about $14.5 billion, and we have 50 uh, uh, hospitals and additions to hospitals, and $40 billion. But we do have to deliver it differently.
2: All right, so here's hoping. Here's hoping that, uh, finally, uh, this can stop being a provincial issue, which gets uh, grounded in provincial politics, which gets stalled in provincial politics, uh, because there's a lot of provincial organizations that have stake in their own uh, provincial uh, agendas and their own provincial associations. Uh, but we have to remember this is a nationwide problem. This is a countrywide problem. Um you, you know, I mean, it was during the height of the global pandemic that NDP uh, Premier uh, Horgan out of British Columbia brought all of the premiers together in the first of a series of conversations about health care and addressing the federal government on this and fixing the broken template. So it's not a situation, although, you know, the situations alter from province to province. Everybody's in the same boat. There's not enough money to make all of this stuff happen. And if the feds can't collect enough money on a federal level through taxation, how are the provinces supposed to pay for this with less of a tax base? So, you know, around and around and around we go. And, you know, well, we we also hear that, you know, we spend the most of anyone on this, yet we seem to be not getting the results uh, that we need. So here's hoping this this conversation continues to be a federal-provincial conversation and we get those problems solved before trying to deliver it at the local level, because this is a countrywide problem, and the global pandemic has exposed that. The great thing about living in this area and through southern Ontario is uh, it's ripe with lots of parks and parkland and trails and 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 vegetation and, and grown-up established neighborhoods as well as new ones. And even when we build new neighborhoods, we're very conscious to include parks and trails and all of that stuff, so we can have a little bit of. Of, uh, of the wildlife and, and nature around us. But unfortunately, it becomes a balancing act. And we've certainly heard of a handful of recent reported coyote attacks in Burlington. I know that, uh, you know, whether you're in Hamilton or Burlington or Oakville or whatever, these uh, sightings have become uh, uh, more evident uh, as we see lots more critters, it seems, in and around our midst, which is a great thing. But how do we balance all of that, especially when in the situation in Burlington, when we've had a couple of people that have been attacked uh, by a coyote? How do you manage all of this? Let's bring in Marianne Mead Ward, Mayor, City of Burlington, and with us now. Marianne, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: I am. Yes, very well. They've left me alone for now.
2: uh, There you go. Take your bell with you. Make sure you got your whistle. Uh, You know, it it seems that, uh, you know, the great thing about these areas is, uh, you know, we've got lots of parkland, we've got lots of trails in certain areas, but with that comes wildlife. How does a city, a municipality, balance this stuff?
4: Well, we've coexisted with uh, coyotes as long as I've lived here. I've been here for 22 mm-hmm. years. There's never been a report of an attack. Yeah. Um, so it's very unusual. It's very rare. And it and it typically we're we're reaching out to uh, experts in this field, including people at Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, because they govern. They set the legislation under which we can operate. But what they tell us is when coyotes become less afraid of humans or, or worse, see them as a source of food, they uh, are prone to more aggressive behavior. And so one of the key things that people can do to protect themselves and their whole community, really, is to ensure that they don't leave food out. Please don't don't feed uh, any critters. Uh, Some people may think it's cute to feed chipmunks or other animals, uh, they are uh, food for coyotes, and so you're just, um, you know, asking for uh, trouble mm-hmm. when you do that. Clean up after your birds. If, if you have a bird feeder, any of that seed that gets on the lawn uh, will attract other critters, small critters that will then be uh, food for a coyote as well. So that, that's one of the first and best things people can do is safe food storage
2: uh it's amazing because uh i've seen them in my neighborhood and man it's it's unlike a dog there's just no face there it's just a stare so you don't really know how they are going to react but again i remember in the spring you see all kinds of rabbits floating around and and what have you so um do do you try to call them do you try to uh figure out ways to keep them away from the population because again when you get lots of nature around you you're going to get these you said that they seem you know in the past they wouldn't they wouldn't uh attack people but even raccoons have become unbelievably domesticated now and you pretty much have to go up and shake their hands before they'll leave (laughs) uh so what like what's the next step for this
4: well, you can't cull coyotes. It's, it's illegal, but, but more to the point, it's also not kind, uh, but it doesn't help. That's the biggest thing. It, it doesn't help because if you have a food source, if you move out a pack of coyotes, another pack will come in and take their place. They're there mm-hmm. because they get food, water, or shelter. We have a lot of great parks, ravines, waters. The thing we love about our city is the same thing the coyotes love about it. So, no, we are not culling the pack. Uh, we can't, and it wouldn't work, and it would be inhumane. However, what we are doing is targeting the two coyotes that we know of who have uh, been involved in the five recent attacks. So one coyote was responsible for three attacks, including on a two-and-a-half-year-old child sitting in his backyard doing, doing right. nothing to attract a coyote uh... and then uh, and that coyote was located with the help of witnesses uh, identified and eliminated with the help of a wildlife uh... certified wildlife uh... technician we are searching for the second one this is unusual but what people can do is what's called hazing and this is is literally scaring away the coyote by making loud noises uh... waving your arms making yourself look big backing away from a coyote don't turn and run they'll chase you uh, so these, all of this is outlined on the City of Burlington's webpage. We've had a long-standing uh, coyote protocol to help people uh, protect themselves and what to do if they see a coyote or they're approached by a coyote. And only in the worst circumstances where a coyote has uh, attacked somebody will we take uh, effort to locate and euthanize the animal.
2: So this is more about eliminating the rogue coyotes that are or have known to attack people than it is about the general policy.
4: That's right. And, and we are also, as you noted uh, in your introduction, we are providing free-of-charge whistles at uh, libraries and community centers. There's been a huge uptake, so much so that we are all out, uh, as of mm. today, the they went in less than 24 hours. So people are really trying to take steps to protect themselves, which is great. Um, we are getting a new supply in. Uh, however, if you if you can't wait, then any uh, whistle that you'd buy at a hardware store or a sporting goods store will do. Uh, we we got them from our friends at Fox 40 uh, whistles, mm-hmm. which are uh, you know NHL uh, <laughs> edition basketball. Users. That'll work. That'll do it. They, they, they work really well, uh, so that's what we've been distributing. Uh, those can be procured uh, individually and independently from any sporting goods or, uh, or hardware store. So uh, you can wait for the free ones to come back in. We will let the public know when we have more. Uh, but this is, uh, this is how people can, in the short term, um, you know, and even in the long term, keep, them, keep themselves safe. Uh, coyotes are mostly out at dusk and dawn. Uh, People are going, you know, kids are going to school, uh, and I know I've had some parents reach out and say, can I get a a whistle for my kids? So uh, this, I think, helps people uh, be protected and be prepared if they do encounter a coyote so that it doesn't approach and, um, or even worse, uh, attack somebody.
2: All right, so you can uh, you can locate the uh, city of Burlington's website and of course, from there, get all the information on all of this, the latest and how you can obtain your whistle as well if you uh, so need. And what about sightings? If people see one, who do they call?
4: We have a form that they can report on uh, on the City of Burlington. We really do ask people to please report because that helps our animal c- control keep track of where they are. That's how they were able to identify and track the coyote involved in the first incident because it had been reported before and identified. And um, so... So please keep doing that online at cityburlington.ca uh, slash coyote. There's also a phone number there that you can call if, uh, if you're more comfortable using the phone. But please continue to report that. We also have a um, uh, additional uh, proactive measures that we are taking, a, a coyote action plan, uh, that will be released on Friday. It's coming to committee September 14. So regis- uh, residents can come and speak to that. Give us your thoughts on that. Is this enough? Do we need to do more? Uh, and a lot of those ideas were generated by residents in the community. So a huge shout out to the Burlington Oakville Coyote Management Group for uh, suggesting a number of those. Uh, so that will that will come in two days.
2: All right, Marianne Mead Ward, Mayor, City of Burlington, talking about the coyote situation. Uh, pretty much, you know, it's not just Burlington, it's everywhere. It's and everywhere. Uh, you've got to be aware of it, especially at dawn and dusk. Uh, Mayor, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with us moving forward.
4: You're very welcome. Thanks for your interest.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Let's bring in Franco terrazano uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Their latest column, uh, the headline is, Ottawa, depending on economic blue skies to balance the budget. There's finally some good news for taxpayers. It reads, instead of balancing the budget by 2070, 2070. The Parliamentary Budget Officer's numbers now show Canadians can look forward to balancing a balanced budget by... 20 years. To talk more about all of this, Franco Terrazano with us now, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Federal Director. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, I am. I am. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, I remember the Prime Minister one time saying that, uh, budgets balance themselves. Your headline says it depends on the economy in the future. Is that what this is based on? Is that, you know, as long as the economy keeps getting better, we can run up the visa bill.
1: Yeah, I remember that too. Hey, I think it was like 2014, maybe 2015, uh, when he was running to become the uh, the, the prime minister for a first time. He said something along the lines of, "Well, you know, budgets will balance themselves." Well, you know, we're still waiting. It's it's uh, 2022 right now, and we just dug into the parliamentary budget officer's latest budget numbers, and according to their data, it shows that the feds won't balance the budget until 2041. So that's another two decades of deficits. Now, if that isn't crazy enough for you and your listeners, let me throw in some some other crazy facts here. For the government to eventually balance the budget 20 years from now under the current trajectory, it would need interest rates to stay relatively low. It would need uninterrupted 20 years of economic growth, and it would also need politicians to finally say no to new spending. So, is certainly, rosy projections for the government to eventually balance the budget twenty years from now.
2: Give us a bit of a history here. Uh, when was it budget? Or when was it balanced last? And will it ever be balanced at, at the way we're going now? I mean, because well, it doesn't seem to be. You know, it's always in the future.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the last balanced budget happened just before Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Took office now. I really want to make it clear that this is just under the current trajectory of the current Trudeau government. There is nothing technically stopping the federal government from balancing the budget. The only thing that's stopping the government is just that these politicians are just haven't found the spine to say no to new spending. Now, the government could 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 balance the budget uh, within the next two years just by bringing spending back to pre-pandemic levels. Now. Here's why that's so important. Pre-pandemic 2018, the Trudeau government was spending all-time highs, even after accounting for inflation and population changes. So that means that in 2018, when there wasn't a cross-country recession, when there wasn't a pandemic, you had the Trudeau government spending more money than the federal government did during any single year during World War II.
2: Um, what are they spending it on? Because many will say, you know, the, the big issue right now in Canada is health care. Uh, what are they spending it on?
1: Well, they're, to, to, put it, to put it frankly, it seems like they're spending money on everything. Um, they're spending a ton of money when times were good, right, before the pandemic, before countrywide recession. They spent a ton of money during the pandemic, and they want to continue spending a ton of money going forward. So let me answer, I guess, the next question is, well, okay, Franco, where, where would you find savings? Well, let me give you three things high level. So the first is that we need to see leadership at the top. During the pandemic, all members of parliament gave themselves three pay raises. So whether they're liberals, conservatives, NDP, bloc, they gave themselves three pay raises. That's Mm -hmm. not the type of leadership we should be seeing at the top. Also, we need to see the government doing the little things right, which we're not seeing. We just saw Global Affairs Canada spend more than $40,000 on fancy office furniture during the middle of the pandemic when everyone else was getting sent home. But more importantly, we need to see the government do the big things right, which it's not. Uh, Let's talk about the ballooning bureaucracy. More than 10,000 government employees have been added every single year over the last five years. We've saw 300,000 federal government employees receive at least one pay raise during the pandemic when their neighbors in the private sector struggled with pay cuts job losses business losses and here's another big issue we're seeing the trudeau government bring in what's called a gun ban and buyback which could cost billions of dollars and unfortunately the rcmp the union representing those officers on the front line have already made it very clear that it's not going to improve public safety so those are the areas where we need to find the government Uh, actually come to the table with some savings.
2: I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Uh, Franco, it's a post-pandemic world. Uh, You're expecting too much.
1: (laughs) Why is that? We're expecting the government to do exactly what families are doing, right? Families are finding savings in the budget. Businesses are finding savings in the budget. Let me give you another analogy. You know, when a family has to deal with a leaky roof, you fix the leaky roof. You don't take out a line of credit to blow money on a new flat screen. that's essentially what we've seen the Trudeau government doing right i think many people could understand if the government redirects resources to deal with the pandemic but the problem is we didn't see any redirecting of resources we didn't see any savings in other areas of the budget and what we're feeling now today with the nearly four decades high inflation is a result to an extent of the massive deficit spending the massive debt and the massive amount of money printing
2: Uh, So it seems as long as we keep growing, um, uh, nobody seems to be concerned about this at the very top. Uh, Gross domestic product announced today at 3.3%. Does that change things?
1: Well, here's the problem, right? For the feds to finally balance the budget in 2041, 20 years from now, they need 8% nominal Hmm. growth this year. They need 5% nominal growth next year. Then they need 4% nominal GDP growth every single year until 2041. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll see 20 years of uninterrupted economic growth year after year after year. I don't know if we've ever seen that before, but let me also bring it back to why this really matters for Canadians, because the more debt that the government accumulates, the more that interest charges cost. Between now and 2041, under the status quo, Canadian taxpayers are going to lose out on $802 billion dollars on interest charges. That's 802 billion dollars over that time frame that can't go to expanding healthcare capacity, it can't go to expanding transportation, and it can't go to lower taxes because that money's paying interest on the government credit card.
2: Uh and obviously interest rates going up, we're in a very much different time now than we were even just a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, and again, that that throws more uncertainty on the PBO's numbers, right, because the PBO's data shows that for the federal government to balance that budget in 2041, it needs relatively low interest rates. Well, as interest rates start to tick up, I think we can all question whether or not the government under the current trajectory will balance the budget even 20 years from now. And of course, the higher the interest rates go, the higher the government's borrowing costs, which means more interest charges that taxpayers lose out on that can't go to services, that can't go to lower taxes, because it's going to the bond fund managers just to pay interest on the government debt.
2: Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, uh, talking about uh, the federal government and the spending, and uh, depending on a really strong economy to pull us through all of this, and that may not necessarily be the case with rising interest rates. Franco, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me on.
5: When there's an issue, Scott is
1: all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News,
0: Today's Talk. 900 CXM.
2: Yesterday, during the show, we learned of the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev. And we remember, those of us that are old enough, uh, how this was back in the 80s and such, 90s, a turning point uh, for Russia. We were just talking recently about how McDonald's pulling out. This was the era when when things were going in, per se. Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological (laughs) Studies, Affiliated Faculty, European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, and with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
6: Hello, yes, thank you. You are too. So
2: The West loved this guy. I mean, it was, you know, he tore down the wall. He he was the friendly face of Russia. We remember the note that the little girl wrote way back when. Uh, But he wasn't as widely uh, accepted in his own country. They liked him more here than there. Is that accurate?
6: I think in general terms that that is accurate. Um, Those of us in the West who are old enough to remember him as the Soviet leader who negotiated the end of the Cold War with uh, American and European presidents and leaders, and he earned a lot of appreciation for that uh, in the West. At home, he was controversial, um, both among more conservative elements of Soviet and then Russian society, who believed, um, like current president Vladimir Putin, that it was a tragedy or a crime for the Soviet Union to cease to exist as well as among more liberal elements, uh, who believe that he hadn't gone far enough with his reforms. And it has to be said, um, people in some former Soviet countries, uh, such as Lithuania, Georgia, and more recently Ukraine, where he um, took steps to try to to prevent their independence.
2: It seemed... it seemed so um, promising way back when. It seemed that this was very much the, the closing, uh, not even a turning of a page, it was the closing of a chapter, a closing of a book, and a new era was, was ahead of, of them and us. What happened? How, how, why did this not work?
6: Well, that, that, of course, is a terribly complex question. Um, I think we can see a lot of amb- amb- ambiguities in, in the career of Gorbachev himself. Um let's not forget that he came out of the Communist Party, which was the ruling party in a one in a one-party regime. and he did not he was not um, selected democratically for his position. he He rose through the ranks as a communist party official in his his native southern Russia and then the Politburo. Um, so um, then he um, was eventually elevated to the position of general secretary uh, in in nineteen eighty five. And he came to power with some ideas for changing Soviet society in a variety of ways, notably in trying to um, correct the the economic problems that prevented it from achieving the same levels of output or technological advancement as the West. In turn, he also saw or understood that this required some liberalization of um, politics within the USSR, but he was not really somebody who endorsed um, democracy as we would understand it, at least until almost the end of his career as Soviet leader. And he was also firmly in favor of maintaining the Soviet Union, despite the wishes of some um, some people in it for independence. So I alluded earlier to the fact that in the republics of uh, Georgia and Lithuania, which were then parts of the USSR, um, he sent in tanks to prevent to crush protesters advocating for independence. So this was a man who who wanted some liberalization, um, mm. but not uh, necessarily what we would call democracy. And he wanted the preservation of this. Highly repressive um, state. Now, it, it is true that over his career he evolved, and and he did, um, you know, toward toward the end of his time as leader, and then as a retired person, sort of make statements that suggested his support for a sort of multi-party democracy. But that has to be set against his own actions and when he was in power. Um, in terms of why his reforms didn't succeed, I think what he found, and then what what later so what later leaders of, of Russia found, was that the the Soviet Union. Um, was not something that was very difficult, was not, not something that was engineered to be easy to modify. So um, hmm. his, his attempts to liberalize the economy um, were largely unsuccessful or, or resulted in the rise to power of, of a corrupt class of former officials and thugs uh, who now basically run Russia. Uh, that certainly wasn't his intention. Um, at the same time, um, that is the, the indirect result of a lot of his policies.
2: Uh, so uh, uh, Putin paid respect yesterday. Uh, obviously, no love loss there. Um, but what can modern-day Russia learn from this? From this? From the last couple of decades?
6: Well, um, I think that you know, as you said, Putin has been highly critical of of Gorbachev's legacy, which which was interpreted as the fall of the Soviet Union, um, and. Uh, unfortunately, Putin himself embodies a certain kind of mindset that is widespread in the Russian political elite and, and at least, many Russian citizens. That that um, this was a tragedy. That the end of this state was was wrong, and to the extent possible, should be reversed. Which we're now seeing unfold in the the, the brutal you know invasion of Ukraine that's taking place now. Um, Gorbachev himself, unfortunately, also endorsed at least some aspects of that policy, notably the the annexation of Crimea by Russia. Um, when, when that policy was implemented in 2014 um, I, I do think we have to 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 say that compared to the current leadership of of Russia Gorbachev was more open to concepts of freedom of speech and the press and less committed to sort of the hardline authoritarian kind of political system that russia has now um, I on the other hand one would have to say that that what we seem to be seeing in Russia at the moment is a kind of attempt to roll back the results of a set of policies or a set of historical outcomes that even Gorbachev himself acknowledged were, were in some sense the verdict of history or at least the result of history. And um, I suppose to answer your question as succinctly as possible, one would have to say that, that what would be needed in Russia is um, some kind of more honest reckoning with the reality that Russia is one state among 15 independent post-Soviet states and is not uh, destined to, to govern the others.
2: Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor, uh, Criminology, Sociological Studies, European, Russian, Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto, talking about the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev and his legacy. Matthew, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
6: My pleasure. Bye now.
2: Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Rito Hall today uh, announcing a minor uh, cabinet shuffle. Uh, Philom- uh, Philomena Tassi locally moving from the role of procurement minister to economic development. Basically, Helena uh, Jasek and her uh, switching roles and to talk more about all of this and what's in the political news today. Henry Jasek with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. And with us now, Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well on this beautiful day. Uh, both of these ministers seem very uh, well-qualified for either of these positions. Uh, obviously, this is for personal reasons. Anything more to add here? Is this significant in any way?
3: No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, one of the larger uh, issues that, that puts some context to this, this is not unusual for, and we've seen this in uh, for other parties, uh, where this has happened where a spouse, uh, an older spouse, has run into problems or maybe children have, have uh, very special needs. And mm-hmm. it really puts a very... Um, a very difficult time uh, for creates a difficult time for the uh, politician about doing the job that they like to do no matter uh, and it's a lot of hard work a lot of time but they they have a nagging feeling oh I should be taking care of my spouse or my child and I you know what should I do about this so it's uh, it's it's not an unusual problem i mean it doesn't normally make the news I mean because most of these people don't want to basically you yeah. know try to play and say I'm playing for sympathy or anything it's t- but it's a reality
2: yeah, and I felt very sir, uh, very sorry for uh, Minister Tassi today. She looked like she had the world on her shoulders as she was standing next to the Prime Minister during that uh, right. news conference, so we wish her and her family only the best there. Uh, let's talk about what happened in regard to uh, Christia Freeland. Now there's lots of chatter about security in and around our politicians and such, but, you know, and, and obviously, Henry, uh, it, it doesn't need to be stated again, or maybe it does, that this is unacceptable behavior. This is not the sort of society... Society we want to lead uh, or, or be a part of, but it seems we're, you know, and all the leaders are coming out and denouncing it, which of course they should, but it seems we're talking more about what that angry person did as opposed to why Canadians are angry and the feeling that politicians aren't listening to them. Is this more about getting to the bottom of this issue or, or just uh, distracting
3: well I think there's nothing wrong with people being upset by policies or things that the politicians do. But
4: mm-hmm. I think
3: there's a way of you know, of expressing it. Yeah. To go out on a rant and, you know, get in somebody's face and start you know, being yeah. very menacing. I I think that, you know, Canadians that's that's not the Canadian way of doing things and I think other it crosses people, the line. Right. And I think other people ought to, you know, step in and say, hey, listen, man, you're, you're, you're going over the top too much. Okay. So you're angry about something. You have a right to talk about it and criticize the politicians. But, you know, it looks like you're being very just menacing to this particular person. And, and, and too often, I think, unfortunately, it is women who get the, the brunt of this.
2: Um, I've heard politicians say Canadians need to step up, Canadians need to make sure this does not become the norm, Canadians need to address this. What about leaders? Uh, What do they need to do here? Because... We are experiencing some of the most divisive politics that we've seen certainly in my lifetime. Uh, I've gone out and said I, I believe personally this prime minister is one of the most divisive prime ministers I've, I've encountered. So are they just blaming Canadians or is this something that starts at the top? Well,
3: I think you have to look, look, you know, I think all, all the, the leaders and everybody has to say, okay, it is okay to criticize the prime minister and the prime, and strongly and his policies and that sort of things, but there's a way, a right way to do it. And it's not, you know, to sort of be, you know, menacing towards people, uh, you know, and particularly a lone person and, you know, and just, just start ranting and yelling at them. And I've been in situations where I've seen it and it's obviously very, very uncomfortable, uh, what do you do? You know, I'm standing in line at a at a, at a retail. I can remember at a, at a, getting my dry cleaning a few years ago, and there's a guy who was just off. I mean, it was around five o'clock. He yeah. probably was hungry, right? <laughs> and and he and and the poor person behind the uh, behind the desk couldn't find the, the, his his order. You know, he was supposed to have his clothes ready mm-hmm. there, and she just couldn't find it. And I, whether it was her fault or not, who knows? But he just said yelling and screaming, and all yeah. the people around there are looking at it. And I said, "What do I do?" You know, first of all, the guy was kind of big, and I was a little, you know, if I stepped into this, yeah. uh, you know, you say, "Well, maybe this guy's going to take a poke at me," you know, and uh, and he was younger than me, and he was strong, looks a lot stronger than me. But I mean, you have, to, I just think at times we just have to do that. And and I I also think this applies to another issue that's going on, the hockey Canada thing. I I just really think. You, you know, you've got to lay down the line, when, it's particularly, I think, for athletes and, and these junior hockey guys. I mean, it's easy for 17- or 18-year-olds to make mistakes, you know, make, have mistakes in judgment. They've got to be told what's right and what's not right. And, you know, and we have this in other sports. We had it with a kicker from the uh, Buffalo Bills, you know, mm-hmm. who, you know, who just did things he shouldn't have done. Uh, you know, and, uh, people just have to say, hey, you don't do this this is this is wrong, and there's going to be very severe consequences depending on the on what you do and i think I think we have to tell people you know you have to behave in a civilized way you can have your own views about things, but you have to be civilized and we it basically we have to tell people that and i know i mean sometimes for younger people i mean I've been in university, i've had to caution people about mm-hmm. doing it. Well, and, it
2: seems that we've lost the, and we've talked about this before, Henry, we've lost the yeah. uh, conversation of agreeing to disagree. We've lost the ability to agree to disagree. Instead, mm-hmm. it's my way or the highway.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, certainly there's a lot of young people, quite frankly, saw an interesting survey that show. Actually, they like what's happening with the Conservative Party now, and certainly if I was a conservative, I'd say looking at the polling of young Canadians, they actually, uh, you know, a lot of young Canadians like uh, what, what seems to be happening, and I think they're they're going to like the new leader to a certain extent. Maybe a bit surprising to me, but I think uh, I didn't expect this. But we we have seen this in polls recently, and uh, you know, so there's you know there's a way of uh, of dealing with leaders we don't like, and that's to go and go and try to change it and support a a new leader.
2: That's a good point. Henry Jasek, with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, uh, talking about a minor cabinet shuffle today and all things uh, politics and security. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very
0: good. Same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Where were you 25 years ago today? I believe it was the Saturday of the Labor Day long weekend. Uh, when we heard of the tragic passing of Princess Diana. Uh, Let's bring in Saad Salman, royal commentator, founder, and editor of The Royal Watcher, and with us now. Saad, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you know, we really haven't talked about this a lot uh, of late, but when this all happened, we remember that, obviously, uh, 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 Princess Diana had separated from Charles. She was out living her own life, and she was just tailed all the time by paparazzi paparazzi were looking for pictures for her from her in any scenario and it was a massive issue that led to this accident that she was fleeing uh paparazzi when when they were killed in france Is that still an issue what happened regarding the paparazzi after the death of princess diana is this still an issue for the royal family
7: um in a sense Um, It has improved quite a bit. Um, A few years after Princess Diana's death, we saw similar treatment uh, when Prince William uh, launched Kate Middleton to the public, and she was hounded by the paparazzi in a very similar way. But then when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle got together, it was quite different, and the paparazzi, there were a lot more rules to keep them at bay, and they weren't attacked or hounded in any similar manner as it was for Princess Diana.
2: What changed, or is that just um, the advent, uh, expansion of social media, and virtually everybody has the ability to take a shot now?
7: Yeah, I think really it is the advent of social media that paparazzi are not as kind of active anymore. At the same time, the kind of demand for paparazzi shots and sense for the royal family, they released their own images of their children and all those things. Mm. So the demand just keeps on lessening, And the magazines that would have traditionally bought paparazzi shots no longer do.
2: We remember way back when everybody loved uh, Diana. And obviously after that, the, the anger turned towards Charles and then Camilla. How are they uh, respected now in the U.K.? In the
7: UK, um, Prince Charles and Camilla have a very different role now. I think people have really moved on, uh, quite a lot of them, especially with Camilla. And this year she has been announced as becoming, that she will become the next Queen concert. She is quite popular. She's done a lot of charity work and championed causes that ha- have made her pretty popular with the public. There are some people who will support Diana in a sense forever, but once their children have forgiven Charles and Camilla and accepted her as part of their family, and they moved on i think it is unfair for members of the public who didn't really know about her to continue harboring ill feelings
2: how did the loss of princess diana how did this change the royal family how did this change how they presented themselves to the public
7: so um really at this, right after diana's death the royal family were keen that her whole passing was supposed to be a private family thing they were at Balmoral Castle in Scotland with uh, Prince William and Harry, and they were keen that they will kind of uh, just grieve with them and support the, her devastated sons, but the public outpouring of grief really forced the royal family's hand that no, they can't grieve in private have to really involve the public in uh, her death and her funeral, and she instead had a huge public funeral in London, and there were the royal family had to make statements, and it really marks a key period of transition from what they used to do to their kind of new, kind of public-focused policy.
2: It seems so much has happened in 25 years since this uh, tragic event. Whether it's uh, uh, Will and Kate, whether it's uh, Harry and, and Meghan, um, how how significant, how important is this date still uh, to, to not only royal watchers but 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 citizens alike?
7: I think uh, for um, royal watchers and citizens, the importance of the day is it really marks an end of an era. The princess's uh, 15 years as a member of the royal family marked a period of really extreme change. And uh, what she did had done a lot to not only transition the royal family's uh, private life, but also their role in the public and how they deal and make the public appearances and charity events. And she created this really new way of the royal family. Part of which they do follow, and part of which that they evolved towards.
2: I've heard many uh, say, and and obviously this is a you know there is no answer to this question, but many wondering what she would be doing now, what she would be like now if she was uh, alive today. Um, when when hearing that, I thought of I, I wonder how uh, the Harry and and Meghan story would have been different if she was still alive today.
7: Definitely, it's a very kind of important thing we can think about. At the same time, if you look at kind of her actions in the last few months of her life, where for the couple of years during her separation and divorce, she was quite volatile. We have um, It has been real that she was manipulated by Martin Pure into giving this interview to Panorama, and she had become extremely paranoid with members of the royal family, her security detail, and almost every other aspect. But for the last few months of her life, she had coming out of that and she had made peace with prince charles and she was in a more happier place in her life so one thing that this kind of vulnerability that people think about her would have transitioned to her being more of a stable and kind of calmer person and Mm -hmm. still be involved in public life
2: how would the royals be marking this day
7: so the royals uh as usual are marking things privately i believe for the 20th anniversary of her death five years ago Prince William and Harry went to her grave at Althorp house, and then they went and sought tributes at Kensington Palace. They did intend for that to be kind of the 20th anniversary, the final uh, kind of time where they would comment on their mother's death and her life and legacy, and they kind of wanted it to be left alone after that. So they have made a conscious effort not to comment on how they're commemorating the day.
2: Uh, obviously we know of the stress relations between uh, Harry and William uh, do d- 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 you think they talk on a deal like today
7: one should hope so last time they really got together um, last year was for the 60th um, birthday of their mother when they unveiled a statue in Kensington Palace and they despite all their differences they did feel that it was important that they should get together and honor their mother's life and legacy
2: uh, what, what moving forward for the Royals? Uh, obviously, as Queen Elizabeth steps down, Charles and Camille uh, will take over. Um, is, is What will it be like once the Queen passes and this whole era is behind us?
7: I think we're beginning to see kind of um, obvious signs of that transition over the past few months with the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. We saw uh, Charles and Camille and William and Kate take a much bigger role in public life. The Queen was not as present, and they were deputizing for her. And when the day finally comes, it will be a much smoother transition and that we'll be so used to seeing them take over all those public duties anyway that it would not be so much of a change for us
2: today marks the 25th anniversary of the passing of princess diana in that horrific car crash uh, sad salman with us royal commentator founder and editor of the royal watcher sad thank you so much for the time and insight on this much appreciated be well thank you it was a pleasure.
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
2: I was surprised to hear this. Elizabeth May looking again at leading the Green Party, uh, but not on her own. She wants to become a co-leader alongside a human rights activist from Quebec. Part of the plan is that they're running separately, but if either one wins, they would appoint the other as deputy leader. And operate as a team. Uh, we remember Elizabeth May stepped down a while ago. Uh, the party heading in a new modern direction. I guess we haven't found that. Michael Tobe is with us, columnist for the Troy, or for Troy Media, Looney Politics, and contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and was the speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you for your time. I hope you're well.
8: My pleasure, Scott. Hope you are too.
2: Are you surprised? Yes, thanks. Are you surprised to see Elizabeth May jumping back into this ring? It was always, you know, it was about uh, her leaving and setting a new path. Uh, What does this say?
8: No, I'm not surprised. I mean, those are just words, Scott. Unfortunately, this is a person who cannot leave the public spotlight because really if she wanted to leave the Green Party to its own devices, she would have actually just left the Green Party entirely. Her presence has been there ever since the day she stepped down it was visible based on reports that we received internally and externally from Green Party activists, whether they're still in the party today or they've left since that time, that she was involved during the whole enemy Paul controversy, that being the previous leader. Mm-hmm. So in reality, if she really wanted to go, she would have gone. And with all due respect, I think she basically wants to reclaim the party once again. And who knows, maybe she feels that in, in some ways her time isn't finished in Canadian politics. And maybe in other ways, she never really felt she left, and that's always been her party.
2: Uh, What about the idea of a co-leader? Is this innovative, or is this just lost?
8: It's not very innovative. It has been done. European political parties have done it. Quebec Solidaire, if you look at them, the socialist alternative in the Quebec legislature, who just have a seat or two, they actually have a male and female co-leader. So there are models that exist of having two people, quote-unquote, in charge of a party. It's not unique. It is, I guess, unique in the sense that if you regard the Green Party as a major party, which is a little debatable, but certainly because they've been involved in leaders' debates and because they've obviously held seats in the House of Commons, they're at a higher stature than other parties, but they're obviously nowhere near the tallies of the Conservatives, the Liberals, the Bloc Québécois, the NDP, etc., um, it's unusual to propose a co-leader model for a party that's something other than a minor party. So that's where, what makes it unique. But the model has been used many times before.
2: Uh, is this about saying I'm involved, but I'm not going to be that involved? Uh, you Because know, when she stepped down, this was about the party moving on. Clearly, they're not at this point if they're going back to her. Why would the party want her at this point if they're moving forward?
8: Oh, I think they will want her. If you look at the other people who've actually um, decided to run, there's five other candidates who've thrown their hat into the race. All of them are lesser-known names. None of them have ever sat provincially or federally. All of them are going to be basically starting, you know, literally at the the beginning point, which in many ways, that's where Enemy Paul was, too. So my guess that in the end, ultimately, why the members would take her is because she's the most recognizable figure in the Green Movement in Canada and of the Green Party in general, even if she's not the leader currently. So it would be shocking to me if they didn't pick her. Plus, a lot of people who have either voting privileges in the Green Party as a member, part of the grassroots membership, or people who have senior roles, executive roles, etc., many of them are either linked or tied to Elizabeth May in some fashion, or if they're not, they know her so well because she, you know, love her or hate her, she's a household name in Canadian politics, They know that she obviously, the minute that she becomes leader, the Green Party will be recognized once again. Because in the last Hmm. year or two, based on the whole enemy Paul controversy and a whole bunch of things that were happening behind the scenes, the federal Green Party right now is basically just, it was a rump to begin with, but it's an even smaller rump now. And most people don't take it very, very seriously. Yes, they they have two Greens in the House of Commons, but... They need someone to be their prominent figurehead, and that's what she would serve as.
2: Is this party still significant when, mm, you know, the major political parties have all some sort of green platform, uh, you know, or agenda? I mean, I I thought it was uh, uh, unbelievable during the last provincial election when all uh, four major political parties, including the Greens, said they all wanted to build a million homes. Is this party still relevant as a one-trick pony?
8: It's not relevant any longer as a one-trick pony, which is why Green parties in Europe, including the German Greens as an example, what they basically did is, although they're obviously known as an environmental party, that's how they started, they eventually incorporated other ideas and policies and pushed Mm -hmm. very hard for things that, yes, are in the Green Party of Canada's platform and policies, but are not issues that it's necessarily associated with. Issues on taxes, ways to build up business, Electoral reform, etc. Those are ideas and concepts that Elizabeth May and Paul and leaders before them obviously presented and represented on the federal scene, but they were never really associated with it. What basically has to happen is the Canadian Greens have to use, as I said, the German Green or even the British Green or Scottish Green model of trying to diversify your platform from being, as you called it correctly, a one-trick pony into a party that has multiple stances it's identified with, as the major parties, the Liberal, the Conservative, the NDP, etc., are.
2: Michael Tobe has been with us, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and speechwriter, former speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, talking about Elizabeth May looking to get back into the Green Party as leader. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Uh, we remember at the beginning of the pandemic uh, when nobody really knew what the heck was going on. Uh, Seven o'clock at night, we'd all go out and beat our pots and pans to thank the healthcare workers. Uh, we saw governments of every Stripe of every level, whether it's municipal, provincial, federal, whether it's NDP, liberal or conservative, all working together. It was my goodness. It was like a utopia, <laughs> except we were all locked up. Uh, and then the pandemic came to an end and um, all hell broke loose. And, and now instead of Canadians being known for, I'm sorry, you go first. No, you go first. No, I'll go for it. No, you go, I'm sorry. No, no, you go for Now we're angry angry as ever, uh, which was, it was very enlightening when we saw the Premier and the Prime Minister get together and meet regarding health care, which is obviously a very important and contentious issue right here in Canada, um, and, and come out the other end talking about unity, because this is all pretty much after two years disappeared uh, in a post-COVID-19 uh, world. Um, how important is it that these two Biggest province and the and the prime minister get together and have a civil conversation, considering where we are in politics and people talking about anger and abuse to politicians and stuff. Daniel Perry's with us, consultant Sima Strategies. He's here now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
9: Same to you, Scott.
2: Uh, how do you explain the relationship between Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau?
9: In uh, one word, interesting. Uh, they don't have a lot in common, but I think when it comes to health like you mentioned, off the top, they will find some common ground. The only sticky point I would say is who's going to pay for it. Uh,
2: they're holding, they held a meeting and then came out and did a very cordial kind of abbreviated news conference, if you will, and, and kept relatively mum on all of this. Does this say, does that say that progress is being made?
9: I think it gives a little bit of a sign that progress is being made. Politicians like to say that they're working on something and they're very proud to announce once they have a solution, but the process to build up to that takes time. And I think them both staying quiet sounds like there's still some ground that needs to be covered before we'll see an agreement.
2: What's more important here, uh, finding a solution to the Canadian health care crisis or keeping your political chops in all of this and winning the next election?
9: Uh, I think there is some political capillary in solving this crisis. I think everyone, like you pointed off the top, no matter where you stand politically, you want to make sure that Canadians have health care. Uh, health is a basic human right. And it's something that Canada has gotten right in the past, but over the past couple of years, it's kind of fallen down the list and it's kind of in disarray right now.
2: Early in COVID-19, as I mentioned, everybody was working together despite, uh, you know, whether your jurisdiction or, or your stripe or such. Post-pandemic, it seems everybody's like yelling at each other. Everybody's angry. There was an angry index out the other day. Uh, does seeing these two together carry some weight? Does this help keep the peace? if justin trudeau and doug ford can find some common ground
9: on literally anything i think there's hope for everyone uh in canada that that we can get along a little bit Uh, the fact that they're both coming to the table and both coming to the table with active listening ears and wanting to solve the problem i would say is a good sign anytime you can get agreement from people that's a win and especially if you're going to solve a crisis like this that's an even bigger win so i think both sides see the political opportunity and they also understand in order to get this done much like childcare, they're going to have to Um, Be nice to one another.
2: Uh, It's obvious, as you said, they both have different uh, uh, political ideology. They think differently in that respect, yet are somehow providing a common front. We saw the same thing with the electric vehicle announcements that they were making uh, in the province uh, a a little earlier. What does this say about polarizing politics? Because, again, we remember when Doug Ford was a bull in a China shop. Now people are comparing him to Bill Davis. Are are we finding the center? Are we we finding, and I I know even center is a bad word now, now, but are, are we finding that common ground between two what would now appear as extreme pol- political parties?
9: Yeah, so I, I think what we're seeing in this case is that at the end of the day, politicians want to do what is best for their constituents, and Doug Ford wants to do what's best for Ontario, and Justin Trudeau wants to do best for Canadian and by extension Ontario as well. So I think at the end of the day, we're kind of leaving kind of those partisan victory points off to the side to help resolve the issue that a lot of people are facing because no one likes showing up to an emergency room and it not being open. And and politicians can understand that also.
2: Do Ontarians realize this is more, much more than a provincial problem? Because, again, once the pandemic sort of, uh, you know, came to a a head over the summer and things started to settle down, we saw the provincial politics start up again, which I I found very frustrating because, you know, we're applying the same band-aids to this ongoing problem. Um, What's changed here? What's different post-pandemic?
9: We're getting back to normal again. People are less willing to cooperate with each other because, there's this big, scary pandemic hitting, people are kind of becoming used to it and starting to pass. So there are old habits are coming back of wanting to uh, bicker and go back and forth with one another. Plus in politics, disagreeing with someone usually gets you more points with the general public than agreeing with someone because the role of the opposition is not to be a rubber stamp, it is to be a check and wait on the government with that said i I think as we see a leadership race in ontario with the ontario ndp and the ontario liberals we'll be seeing a lot more divisiveness because that's how you separate yourself from others is by standing up for what you perceive people to believe in and making a big deal out of it and wedge issues tend to win leadership races so i think we might be seeing some some more issues come out in ontario here especially as the leadership races kick off
2: do you get the feeling that Canadians' attitudes have changed on all of this in the sense that uh, they're tired of the chatter and want some results? I mean, obviously, the the, the pandemic pointed out to weak links in the chain in, in various industries. Are, are, people at the, are Canadians at the point where, and maybe this is one of the reasons they're angry, where enough talk, we just want some action here. We want something done.
8: Yeah,
9: I think Canadians have a basic uh, desire for the government to do its job, whether that is to deliver passports, provide health care, Or even oversee airports so you're not losing your luggage when you're flying from Toronto to Ottawa. Um, So I think there's (laughs) frustration that it doesn't seem like the government is doing their job right now. And I think that's what we're seeing from people on the ground. And that's why we've seen a lot more anger directed to politicians. Because people don't know where to put it. So they're throwing it at politicians. And often that comes out in a very poor way. And something that we should not be condoning or even celebrating in Canada. We should be more civil.
2: Uh, and obviously talking about Christy Freeland, which she experienced in Alberta, and everybody uh, obviously agrees that this is not acceptable behavior. However, are politicians understanding why this is happening as opposed to just condemning the wacko that does this?
9: I don't think so. I think they're missing the point as well. And to be fair, some of the blame can be put on our politicians. When you watch Question Period in Ottawa, uh, an accurate description of that would be a clown show because they are taking the anger that they're hearing at the doors and trying to weaponize it for political points. So politicians have to take some of the blame in why we're seeing a more polarized Canada. And I don't think they'll be wanting to take uh, any of that credit in some cases or any of the blame in other instances for Canada separating, but I think a lot of it falls on the shoulders of politicians to uh, fix their behavior and then we'll probably see better behavior in civil society also.
2: Well, it's like saying if the uh, parents are misbehaving, the kids are going to too. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> they, they are the le- They are the leadership. Uh, Daniel Perry with his consultant, Summa Strategies, talking about the uh, relationship between the Premier of Ontario and the Prime Minister. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. We know
7: that COVID-19 will continue to evolve and circulate in the community and that other respiratory viruses, including the flu, will begin circulating. But we know how to protect ourselves and prevent severe illness. Importantly, we know how to protect our communities and have learned from the last two years how to protect our health care system as well. So stay up to date with your vaccinations. Stay home when you're sick.
2: There you have it, Dr. Kieran Moore. Remember him? Uh, Ontario's top doc. I mean, I remember, man, when uh, those guys would speak, it's every single day we'd cover the news conference. Thank goodness we don't have to do that uh, anymore. But Dr. Kira Moore uh, holding a news conference earlier on today at about 1 o'clock, talking about uh, various things as we head back to school uh, after the Labor Day weekend, including uh, boosters now available for kids 5 to 11 years of age and people in Ontario who test positive uh, no longer have to isolate for 5 days but should stay home until uh, their symptoms have improved for at least 24 hours let's talk about that and everything else uh, as we head back to school dr timothy sly is with us epidemiologist professor emeritus school of population and public health toronto metropolitan university and with us now tim thanks for the time i hope you're well uh yes scott Uh, good afternoon so dr kieran moore speaking today he sound relatively calm about everything and and confident as moving forward into uh, the new school year how concerned are you about back to school
10: well it's uh you know, we, we went through the last fall and the fall before that. My goodness, we go back a long time, don't we? <laughs> um yeah. yeah, there's mixed feelings there, Scott, quite honestly. I mean in the one we are going to head into another wave, there's no question. It it's it's shown that characteristic every fall so far. Uh, but this time, we've got a, an awfully large wall of resistance uh, built up, a wall of immunity that's built up in the population that we didn't have this time last year. And that's uh, that's very comforting in a way. What we're seeing really is that we're, we're seeing the gradual slide from a, uh, the, the crisis of an early pandemic into what is now becoming sort of week by week, a little bit more like a, a seasonal endemic it hasn't Mm -hmm. gone away by any means don't let anybody imagine that's the case the wastewater signal is as high as uh, it's been for a couple of months now and it's not going down well that's normal because you know this in a endemic where you can expect the virus to be here all the time, just sort of going up in the fall and then down in the summer. And this is what it's shaping up to be a little bit more. Hospitalization is a bit of a worry. There's about seven, I just did the calculation this afternoon, about seven times more people in hospital with COVID than we had this time this week last year. Uh, That's a bit concerning too.
2: Uh, But we should remind everybody that that being said, people are not as sick with this variant as they were with Delta and the other variants.
10: True, not as many people are sick, but those who are sick are sick. There's no the question about it. It's still quite serious. However, you're right. I mean, out of the whole population base, uh, uh, there's uh, you know we're not suffering for a, as much. I think the the idea is that. Uh, we've just got to look at a new way. When we began to talk, you and I, way back in the beginning, we were looking at trying to find the odd cases of this strange new virus, building a wall around them, and being sure that it wouldn't get out. And now the situation is that it's out everywhere it's circulating yeah. around some estimates are that 60% of us have had the virus whether we knew it or not at some point in the last few months uh, and so the virus is everywhere we need we really need to protect uh, ourselves as much as we can and the vulnerable people in our family and especially the healthcare systems they really need protecting
2: Obviously, in September, as the kids head back to school, uh, there seems to be everything going around. I remember my wife and I joking that once we had kids and and they got into school age and such, every September we would get sick, whether we meant to or not, just simply because there were so many, you know, all these kids are coming together. You talked about another wave because there just simply are people coming together again. What do you think this wave will look like? I mean, in many cases, will people be ill and not even realize they have it? Uh, will we, you know, see uh, situations where all of a sudden it does become serious again? What do you, wh- what do you think we're going to see? Uh, what do you think this next wave will look like?
10: Well, because Canada's done a pretty good job at the vaccination, and people have showed up and rolled up their sleeves, and we've got about eighty-two percent or something have had something like the third shot. This is really good, good news, and so I, I hope it's going to look a bit more like a speed bump. And it does does the the side of a you know mm-hmm. a large mountain and I, and it, we can, we can handle that what what I am worry, worry, worried about quite honestly are uh, uh, three things one is the the fact that we 've missed childhood vaccination for all the other things they 've sort of mm. gone behind by the wayside now whether it 's HPV and polio and meningococcal disease you know we 've got a few cases of that in in Ontario at the moment uh we also got the vaccination in other countries that uh, w- that really haven't caught up with the rest of us civilized not civilized, but highly highly industrialized nations those the, the people who aren't in that category are, are 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 barely at the first or second vaccination level and that's where the new variants are going to come from uh, so, so that i forget what the third one was now i'm burbling away here but no i think we're 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 uh, We're seeing a different picture, and I think that I hope that it'll be a more as I said, a speed bump rather than a large thing we What we can do is pre- prepare for uh, the kind of common sense approach. You've seen that kind of message coming down from all the, most of the provinces now, really putting the power, you putting you in the driver's seat for your mm-hmm. own. Good. Uh, wear a mask. I wear a mask when they go into the pharmacy or the supermarket. Or the, um, about half the people in there I see, where I live, do that, and this is a good thing to do. Uh, kids in school. I know it's voluntary, but I would like to see highly high levels of encouragement to do that. Become a social norm. Become part of the culture, because you remember, it's going to protect against respiratory syncytial virus, common colds, all those viruses, the various flus that come along, it's going to protect against a lot of that as well. And you know, as you said, you're absolutely right in the beginning. Uh, any teacher, talk to any teacher in September, about the third week in September, they all come down with a with a cold because yeah. suddenly... They've got no resistance, and we've missed that resistance in the last few months. You know, we haven't been dealing with people without, without a mask, so we've, we've dropped that protection.
2: Let me ask you that, Tim, then, because, you know, you just mentioned you'd like to see people in, in certain situations, you know, wearing a mask and, and masking up because it does stop the other things, even a cold, the flu, whatever. But if by doing that, are we stopping ourselves from building up a natural mu- immunity by getting these occasionally?
10: It's an excellent point, uh, Scott, and what I'd say is that that's going to happen anyway. Let it happen mm. gently. let us let it ease into the hot water bathtub uh, slowly, one toe at a time. Mm. At the moment, it's a bit too early to start ripping off the mask and getting back to group hugs now, simply because, as you said, the virus hasn't gone away. We've got a lot of people in hospital still, and uh, let's get through this winter this season and see what it looks like. I would imagine, quite honestly, I predict it's probably next September, we're going to see it settle into almost a steady state where it'll be uh, a predictable speed bump of increased cases in the fall around the, from, from November through the February and go down again in the summer. And we'll probably all be lining up for a booster shot along with the flu shot somewhere in the early fall or late September somewhere. And yeah. I think that's what, that's steady state. But until we get there, let's not uh, open our you know vulnerabilities immediately to all the other things as well.
2: Uh, you sort of touched on this, Tim. Is this fall a turning point, considering where we are in this global pandemic at the two and a half year mark or what have you? Is this a turning point where we see, okay, here's how we do it?
10: Well, given that there's no new variant that comes along, and we've mentioned this before, you know, we've, we've talked about SARS 1 back in 2003 having a case fatality rate of somewhere around 11%. That could be about 15 times as bad as this one. Given that we don't get new variants come along and the, all that we see is just a version of the same one, yeah, I think we, we could describe ourselves as in the sort of the foothills of a pandemic. Mm. We're not quite down on the plains yet, but we're in the foothills and we can see the steady state ahead of us, maybe in another few months, or half a year or something. So let's, let's handle it properly. Let's not be stupid about this. And uh, uh, we should be encouraging vaccination, uh, for, for all the things I said, plus also COVID, we've got kids now who are very eligible, five to 11 year olds, mm-hmm. let's get them vaccinated. Uh, Because what we haven't had is enough time to really understand what long COVID means in the long term. It's only been around for a couple of years. And long COVID, many polio, for example, and other Mm. diseases, they take a decade to show what it really means. And this particular virus is particularly nasty. It affects every organ system in your body. It's not just the lungs. And so we really don't know.
2: Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, Professor Emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about where we are heading into a Labor Day weekend with a global pandemic. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: We were talking a little earlier about the uh, cabinet shuffle. Uh, involving uh, Hamiltonian Philomena Tassi. Uh, she uh, basically just swapping portfolios with Helena Jasek uh, and uh, procurement going to Helena and economic development to Philomena Tassi, stepping down for personal reasons. But it was interesting listening to her comment on the state of politics, the polarization in politics, and the anger that Canadians are feeling and the abuse towards politicians. And we've certainly seen that with uh, Chrystia Freeland, Deputy uh, uh, Prime Minister, and what she endured in Alberta. And no matter what way you slice or dice it, whether you agree with someone's politics, that's not the way you handle it. And I think everybody agrees on that, but I don't think we should spend our time focusing on one uh, boorish Albertan who uh, said what he said. Uh, I, I have a feeling if Justin Trudeau was there, he would have said exactly the same thing. Uh, and rather than focus on how bad this person is, Uh, we should be focusing on the reasons that this is happening and why Canadians are so angry and why they feel politicians are not listening to them it seems and I've talked about this many many times we have forgotten how to uh, agree to disagree instead it's my way or the highway and that has got to change Uh, however it seems we're focusing more on the individuals and, and and the people involved and what those people are saying as opposed to looking in the mirror and asking yourself what's causing this polarization. Here's what uh, the minister had to say in regard to free speech.
5: You can advocate and represent constituents' views and advocate and be very strong in um, political representation. And you know the best way to do that is by a smart, intelligent argument not through uh, insults and, uh, and accusations.
2: Does that happen, though? And is that happening at the leadership level? Uh, later, we're going to play a clip of the minister saying Canadians need to step up. Um, that's like saying the kids got to step up and take care of the parents. It's the parents that need to step up. It's the leadership that needs to step up. They follow by example. So I don't think you can push this off on Canadians losing their politeness. I think it starts at the top. Here's what the minister had to say about the political abuse escalating.
5: If Canadians don't enter into this dialogue, it's going to get worse and it's going to escalate. If this behavior is accepted as a norm, then we are going to be in a position that's far graver than we're in now.
2: You know, and again, I, I, you know, if we don't step up and, and talk about this, uh, again, I will look to the Prime Minister, who I believe is one of the most divisive Prime Ministers we have had. And in the middle of an election campaign, when the majority of Canadians were trying and waiting in line to get vaccinated, waiting for their age group to be called to win an election, the Prime Minister all of a sudden made it mandatory during a freedom convoy when ninety percent of the truckers are already vaccinated he refuses to meet with them rather than celebrating the fact we had so many people vaccinated we were vilifying and piling on those that weren't because that was the political discourse of the day um... here's what the minister had to say in regard to journalists and getting people to come on board
5: we will not have people stepping up to enter political life to serve as journalists, because they're afraid for themselves, and maybe even graver, they're concerned for the safety of their family, and that's the situation. It's a sad reality.
2: Uh, and in regard to Canadians stepping up to solve this problem,
5: we have to go beyond that and in, and really encourage Canadians to step up and say, "Folks, this isn't this isn't acceptable, and it's going to take us and, and and result in grave consequences if we don't do that."
2: All right, there you have it. So, you know, all common sense words, all words that we should be living by, things that we should be striving for, this is not right. We need to agree to disagree and then go have a drink. But again, by pointing to Canadians, I think you're missing the point because it starts with leadership. It starts at the very, 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 very top It starts with the actions inside the House and the legislature. It starts with the people who we elect to lead us. They set the tone for the country. And it amazes me when people point to that extreme or the other extreme, when in fact they are one of the extremes, which is why they're pointing to the opposite one. So I agree with everything the minister has been saying. I agree with everything the prime minister has said in regard to this attack, uh, uh, the verbal attack on Christy Freeland. But at what point do these politicians look in the mirror and take take responsibility for some of the polarization and divisiveness they have created in this country? Stop pushing it on Canadians. We're just trying to put a, a roof over our family's head and feed our kids. Leadership needs to step up.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks to the two wills for producing and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer. To have the last word.
3: This is Tony LeBlanc. On this government action about taking people out of hospitals and putting them in any bed that they could find, that is going to isolate them from their families. Uh, Their families are not going to be able to uh, advocate for them, go in and make sure that they're uh, fed, watered, and looked after properly. Then they are going to possibly be left alone and psychologically and physically traumatized, and they will just die of loneliness without any family looking after them in any way, shape, or form. And this is just wrong, and the government is only doing this so that they can get their assets.